This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It is Friday at noon, so it is time for our weekly news recap. This is where we catch you up on the biggest stories, state and local stories that you might have missed, but you got to know about. Stories like these. Right now, the trial is underway for the so-called ComEd 4. The 12 jurors will spend the next two months listening to the case against former Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan's longtime confidant, Michael McLean. ComEd's former CEO, a former ComEd lobbyist, and the former president of the City Club. This is a test of the entire political system and the way it was operated under House Speaker Mike Madigan, who was in control of Illinois politics for decades. Is it that simple, or is this just lobbying and how it goes and an elected official trying to give folks appointments and jobs because that's what you do when you're, when you're asked by constituents. Madigan confidant Michael McLean arrives at the Dirksen Federal Building for what could be an historic corruption trial. Our panel this week to help break down the top stories are Kim Belware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back, Kim. Hi, thank you. Derek Blakely is here, former CBS2 Chicago politics reporter. Welcome back, Derek. Thank you very much. And Chicago Tribune investigative reporter Ray Long. Ray's also the author of The House That Madigan Built, The Record Run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer. Good to have you back, Ray. Good to be back here. Thank you. I'm going to stick with you. Leading okay. our recap this week is, of course, that trial of what's being called the ComEd 4. Who are the ComEd 4, Ray, and what are they accused of? Well, it's a very uh, interesting crew. Uh, we have Mike McLean, who was a legislator back in the 70s and early 80s, and he became a powerful lobbyist. He became the Madigan whisperer, basically, in Springfield, very close confidant of, of the speaker, uh, the speaker who ruled the House for 36 years, and what, that's an, a, a national record no one in history obviously in america has gone that far right so it's so he's the guy that madigan would assign different roles to like go go do this or that or he would be the intermediary for a lot of the people who who did uh ran bills etc and um he also became heavily involved as a lobbyist for ComEd, and that's why he's on trial because they suggest that the ComEd, which uh, has acknowledged uh, that they were trying to shower Madigan with gifts, uh, tried to influence him into looking favorably on their legislation. And wow. they made lots and lots of money from lucrative legislation, or lucrative to them. Yeah. And so that's one, Mike McLean. Number two is Anne Promajori. She was the CEO of ComEd when three big pieces of legislation went through the, the legislature. Actually, actually oh, she was she moved up into CEO during after uh, the first one passed. Okay. But then um, she uh, is on tape uh, that we've seen already in some of the the uh, briefs that have been filed, saying things like "You, you take care of me." Uh, uh, and I'll take care of you. And, and that's the kind of things that, um, you know, people are wondering where the line is. Like right. you were saying, where mm -hmm. is the line? Uh, uh, like our audio uh, said there, uh, where is the line between legal lobbying and illegal bribery? Right. And so uh, then we've got uh, John Hooker, a longtime ComEd guy who uh, was a uh, 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 started in the mailroom at ComEd, moved his way up, became 
you know, went to school at night, uh, earned his degree, moved up in the organization, eventually became a major executive in the organization who was in charge of lobbying. And he was so good at his job and uh, gregarious uh, that lawmakers uh, loved him, plus they loved the goodies that came along from ComEd in the form of of uh, donations, et cetera. And so um, he was known sometimes as Santa Claus when he walked into wow. the Capitol. And then uh, we've got uh, Jay Doherty. He was primarily known around here as the president of, of the City Club. Mm-hmm. And that's the place where uh, you could hear uh, all kinds of politicians and business leaders come and talk. And he was always a, a one to praise his uh, employer, ComEd, yeah. and he's the guy where they uh, uh, are accused of sticking a lot of Madigan allies into his contract as kind of a an arm's length hidden way to to avoid the uh, payments to these so-called wow. ghost ghost what subcontractors. A web. Yes, uh, Derek, defense attorney Patrick Cotter said, "quote." It's not a crime. It's not a conspiracy. And you know what? It's not even suspicious. It's a profession, unquote. ComEd executives and lobbyists just doing their job? What do you think the jury's going to think? Well, I can tell you that that is a defense that has been put forth by many Illinois politicians uh, over the years, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, they're criminalizing politics, Um but, you know, I always say um, that they don't ring a bell when the rules change. And it would seem as though uh, uh, politicians and maybe even corporate execs uh, would have read the handwriting on the wall a lot sooner than now. Um, because I've heard that defense uh, uh, given by Rob Lagojevich. I've heard that defense uh, given by... Uh, a number uh, of Illinois politicians mm-hmm. uh, who have all wound up uh, being convicted. Um, I- I'm sure that's not the sum total of their defense. Uh, it, that may be the bottom line, but I think you, you'd better have a better legal argument than that because um, um, the rules clearly have shifted yeah. um, compared to what they were uh 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right. uh, the game isn't played that uh, that way anymore, at least not legally in the eyes of the law, and there's a lot of convictions to prove it. What do you think, Kim? you think the jury's going to agree there? They're just doing their job. There is a lot of stuff on tape that uh, I think is going to, uh, you know, maybe maybe not work so well for the defendants, but, you know, there's, there's plenty for the jury to... Um, you know, really pick over, and and it it seems like it could really undermine some of those yeah. some of those claims that this is just how the business is done. Well, former state rep Carol Senti, a Democrat from Northwest Suburban Vernon Hills, took the witness stand on Wednesday. Briefly, tell us what she said, Ray, and why you think she was the first witness called by the prosecution. Well, she comes off as a very credible witness. She has a, a good a, appearance, a good delivery a good understanding of the process, and she could break it down, communicate real well about how Madigan had this enormous power. One of the examples that she gave was that uh, she introduced a proposal that called for term limits on legislative leaders. 
Of course, Madigan was a legislative leader, the longest Forever. Serving. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was uh, for 14 years, and it was not retroactive. So it was giving him, like he was already in his 70s, and it was giving him uh, 14 years uh, more if he wanted to approve it. And uh, he called her into the office, had a copy of it, uh, showed it to her and said, what's this about? Mm. And she uh, said, well, um, I just think blah, blah. And and then uh, he said, uh, well, you know, it takes a while to get organized. He'd been there 30 some odd years at that point. <laughs> and uh, she said, 35 years. And uh, then right at that point, it was well, uh, thank you for coming in. He <laughs> stood up, shook her hand, and... and uh, Nothing more to say there. That was over. Yeah, the, yeah. so it, it, she gave vivid examples. And, I see. And she, she uh, helped set the stage. Interesting strategy. What do you think of the prosecution strategy to, to start with the former state rep, Derek? Well, you have to start somewhere. I think they were trying to uh, illustrate... Uh, for the jury, which, you know, may not be clued into Illinois politics, um, how Madigan's power uh, was created and how he operated. Um, It's really extraordinary. I mean, you had one guy who was uh, Speaker of the House, yes, uh, who was also chairman of the party, um, which meant he controlled campaign funds, uh, primarily for his House candidates, and that was his major objective, is to try to keep his majority in the House so he could keep his speakership, which he had had for all all but two years mm-hmm. in there. Um, and uh, he was—the power was enormous, and it was built on the narrow base of a state rep position and a ward committeemanship. Uh, so— it was hard to battle because it, there was kind of no way to get to him. Mm. Um, he had a solid, he controlled this ward, the 14th ward. He was the committeeman of the ward. Uh, and uh, he would keep getting reelected. Um, and once he had built up all these other levers of power, he was kind of insulated um, until um, uh, these federal investigations began. Mm. Kim, some might say Illinois has got a national reputation for corruption in its government bodies. What are your thoughts on how the trial might impact our already tarnished reputation? Well, that's true. That is something that comes up, unfortunately. Illinois uh, is synonymous with political corruption, given given the history. You know, it certainly doesn't help things. Uh, it, it's not great either for uh, any of the parties, you know, when they're leading the state. That's always a criticism fair, not that they're going to have to contend with because, um, you know, Madigan, it, you know, how much he uh, reflects kind of where the Democratic Party is today. Yeah. He is still a, a Democrat, and that's always just going to be something that um, opponents will seize on to attack all Democrats in the state. And to, to Derek's point about how some of the jurors might not have been so clued into to our politics, do you think that this is a chance for regular folks to kind of see how the sausage is made in Springfield and just the inner workings of that political machine? Well, in my experience, jurors tend not to uh, be very sympathetic towards politicians who uh, argue that they, you know, the rules weren't fair to them. And, uh, you know, seeing seeing how it's done can be very eye opening and, and also seeing how much control is wielded by uh, by some of these politicians, you know, feeds certainly a pervasive sense that, you know, maybe some individuals have too much power and they're using it too improperly. Ray, do you think that this trial is going to provide any 
shocking surprises about how things get done in Springfield? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> You're waiting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'd take a lot for me to be surprised after uh, covering the place since 1981. Right. But, but uh, I do think that uh, it is interesting to really hear the candid conversations that Mike Madigan is involved in in these tapes. And I do think that the public will get a good handle if they actually listen to these tapes and hear hear how the, the things uh, are done behind the scenes when uh, a guy like Madigan doesn't know anybody's recording. So it's a, it's an eye opener for the for the Joe Lunchbox and Josephine Lunchbox and I, I got to tell you um, this is one trial that could make a difference. You know, the other thing is Ray um, for all of his power uh, even after he became acknowledged as this supremely powerful figure, um, Mike Madigan was not a loquacious guy. Yeah. He was not known for his great speech making right. or or even uh, his, uh, you know, profound public pronouncements. He, he kind of got along by saying as little as possible in public. So that's another reason why the tapes will be will be revealing. Yeah. Uh he he was always kind of like a, a, a sphinx-like public presence, but now we're going to hear um, how he how he really operated behind the scenes. Yeah. Speaking of the tapes, Ray, that the judge also issued a ruling on a news media request, right, which right. included the Tribune. Give us the details there. Right. Uh, BZ and uh, Sun Times actually started this filing, and the Tribune joined immediately, um, and basically. The defense side, uh, the attorneys for the defense, and particularly Mike McLean, had pushed for no audio recordings to be released during the trial. Now, it's just standard practice to do that. Um, these just happen to be much more interesting because uh, Mike Madigan's in, involved in it, and he's been the guy who's running Illinois politics for decades. And so uh, what happened was... Uh, media organizations got together and argued that there should be uh, a release as soon as they're entered into evidence. We should have access to them so that we can can play them. And uh, Judge Harry Leinenweber said, uh, look, I've looked at the rulings. They're all one-sided in favor of transparency. Mm -hmm. And he ruled that they should be released as soon as they get introduced. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike Madigan, we know former longtime speaker of the Illinois House. I want to be clear, he's not on trial, but right. he is going to be the focus of a lot of attention here. Before we take a pause, Derek, how damaging do you think that this will be for his legacy? Well, we, we'll, we shall see. Um, you know, we have the results of this trial and then we'll have, uh, uh, Madigan himself will be on trial. So when you put those two together, um, it's going to definitely color the way he is, he is viewed in the future. Um, I, I can't, you know, predict the outcome of either trial, but the conviction rate in the Dirksen federal building is about, uh, 95 percent plus so yeah. uh that gives you uh, uh uh some inkling uh for what the comment four are up against and also what mike madigan will eventually be up against when he comes to trial i think uh, just to pick up on that sasha the uh i think derek's right i think these trials will be what determines 
Madigan's legacy. And uh, it will rely a lot on the outcome of these. If he's found guilty, well, that's going to be yeah. uh, in the first sentence of his obituary. So um, it will be a very, very telling moment. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Back now with more Reset and the weekly news recap. With us now is a panel of journalists breaking down the biggest state and local stories. Now, before the break, we went behind the headlines of the ComEd 4 trial. Let's get back into the week's news, though. Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown's second in command is taking over running the police department. The Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability announced that they are beginning their nationwide search for the next police superintendent in Chicago. Paul Ballas touted the backing of several city council members. Attorney General Kwame Raul became the first statewide elected official to make an endorsement in the Chicago mayor's race. In the studio with me today, Kim Belware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post. Derek Blakely, veteran journalist and former CBS2 politics reporter and Chicago Tribune investigative reporter Ray Long. All right, I want to turn to the mayor's race now. We have seen a handful of new endorsements this week because they just keep coming. Kim, walk us through these latest Yeah, so a very important one for Brandon Johnson coming in today, Um, Congressman Chewy Garcia giving Johnson his endorsement. Uh, Garcia came in fourth place. Um, He, you know, he started out as a front runner, he finished fourth, but he has thrown his support behind Johnson, who's, you know, kind of a younger, more leftist progressive, but has something of a similar message um, about having this multiracial coalition, building a better Chicago that works for everybody. And this is an endorsement that uh, Johnson really couldn't afford to lose. Um, He didn't perform as strongly in predominantly Latino neighborhoods Mm -hmm. that Chewy did perform strongly in. And uh, in a lot of those, Vallis was uh, running second in those. So uh, as far as how far this will propel him, is there going to be money coming with this? Is there is he going to go out and stump for him? You know, ultimately, how influential will this endorsement be remains to be seen. He also picked up some other ones from um, state and also uh, national figures uh, yeah. from Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Bernie Sanders and um, independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and, and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren both mm-hmm. gave their support for Johnson, which is, you know, they're they're prestigious and it's good reputation burnishing. Um, I do wonder how much that's actually going to influence voters, especially the voters that Johnson needs. He needs black and Latino voters to show up for him. Um, do senators in other states really speak to those voters? Uh, you good know, that, and, and historically Bernie Sanders has had his own criticisms of, of not really um, resonating with, with yeah. black voters. So uh, that kind of speaks to the people who are already supporting him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there is a split with labor. Vallis has picked up endorsements from a lot of his rivals in the mayoral race. Jamal Green. Jamal Green. That was, you know, that that, that was, was an the, interesting one. That was an interesting one. Youngest candidate in the race. They seemed uh, not to share a whole lot in common on At a all. lot of the issues. And and what was interesting about this one is, um, you know, he said that he secured several promises from Vallis about how he would approach governing if he becomes mayor, including, you know, putting in um, a a youth program, year-round youth jobs training, make kind of a a program with the mayor's office to get more political engagement. That's something that's sort of uh, Jamal Green's, you know, particular priority. 
But uh, he also attacked Johnson on some really personal terms, which is interesting to see if, as a surrogate for Vallis, he uh, turns out to you know, be be someone who prominently attacks Johnson and he's mm-hmm. attacked Johnson, um, you know, on on some uh, points that hit on on some more racial lines, you know, kind of noting that, Interesting. you know, says that he exploits where he lives in the Austin community and, and you know, some some real interesting things happening there. But um, the the challengers like former Alderman Roderick Sawyer, among those also backing Vallis, he got Jesse White, the former Secretary of State. Um, yeah. So he's he's been pulling in. Vallis got several alder people, Michelle Harris, too, Anthony Beal, yeah. David Moore. Um, Johnson got uh, former mayoral candidate Cam Buckner as well yeah. on the other side. Any of these endorsements really stand out to you guys, Ray and Derek? Um, I think the Chewy Garcia endorsement can uh, help Johnson solidify the progressive vote um, because that was a, a split in the first in the first round of voting and a significance split. And as Garcia is kind of an elder statement, statesman of that movement, um, I think that that will help Johnson. Uh, and I think generally the endorsement of the uh, black elected officials who are standing with Vallis uh, broadly helps him. Um, I don't think the, the, the national figures weighing in, I don't think uh, uh, really uh, does very much uh, for the guy uh, living in a bungalow. Uh, I don't think that's very influential. And, you know, I, I don't know. There are a lot of ways to look at this race. And um, one useful way, I think, is that uh, Johnson is trying to reassemble the, the old Harold Washington coalition with a solid black uh, base and uh, with uh, support from uh, uh, whites along the lakefront and then uh, also uh, support from Hispanics. And Paul Vallis is trying to recreate kind of the Daily Coalition with a strong Northwest and Southwest base, Mm. um, substantial support uh, in the black community, and also... uh, um, uh, Hispanic support as well. Of course, Daly built his own Hispanic organization, which was known as the uh, Hispanic Democratic Organization. Um, the challenge for Johnson, I think, uh, is in part a demographic one. I mean, he's he was seen as behind. He seemed to have been closing. I think uh, the race is tightening, but you know there have been a lot of demographic shifts in the uh, in the years since Harold Washington. Yeah. Uh, there's been a substantial loss of black uh, population, um, which is a challenge. So I think he's going to need uh, a, 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 he's going to need a, a big black turnout, and he is going to need uh, to dominate that turnout. Mm-hmm. But still, at the end of the day, whether there are enough votes to try to close the gap is 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 questionable. Yeah. And in the first round, the turnout in the black wards was uh, was quite low. Yeah. Quick thoughts from you, Ray? Well, just to pick up on what Derek was saying is that uh, Lori Lightfoot won the black majority wards. uh, And so that uh, area, uh, those areas, those wards are still out there ready to be seized upon. And if one or the other can take those wards, that will really, really help uh, help whoever is trying to pull together just enough votes to get in the office. Yeah. Well, s- switching gears, Superintendent David Brown 
stepped down yesterday, uh, and there's a new process to find his replacement. This involves this newly created Commission for Public Safety and Accountability. They've got until mid-July to sort of give the mayor names of three finalists for for superintendent. Now, now Derek, the commission has signaled that they're looking for a candidate who's got experience implementing a consent decree and also someone who can work collaboratively with this commission and city council and the community. So as as well as getting clearance rates up and and crime rates down. So what do you make of those being their priorities? Well, I think they're laudable uh, priorities. Um, There's been an interesting tension, you know, over the decades in Chicago uh, in in choosing police superintendents, whether you get an insider, an outsider. Um, Richard J. Daley famously brought in a, uh, a guy named O.W. Wilson, who was kind of a uh, an academic, and uh, uh, it didn't seem like a a fit for a Chicago police superintendent. But he instituted a number of reforms. That was following a, a scandal in which there was a burglary ring being run out of a. Uh, Chicago District Police Station uh, by police Imagine. officers oh, called, uh, called the Summerdale Scandal. And oh, uh, also uh, Richard M. Daly brought in a former FBI chief to run the Chicago police. Um, and he lasted about three years, a guy named Jody Weiss. Um, it seems that the temperament of the moment suggests that um, an insider would be preferred. Uh, given mm-hmm. the morale issues and given the lack of success of David Brown, who came here from Dallas under Lori Lightfoot and uh, uh, did not seem to be well accepted uh, by the rank and file. Um, he had a very good reputation in Dallas, but I think his just his lack of knowledge uh, about Chicago and um, the moment at which he uh, was brought in uh, in the uh, the racial reckoning yeah. and, well, and the rioting did, did not serve him well. He was uh, essentially, I'm saying, he was put in a bad position. Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, both mayoral candidates they've said that they want to choose someone from inside CPD. Yesterday on Reset, we had Anthony Driver, who's the president of the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability, on the show. Uh, we asked him if hiring from within CPD was a priority of the commission. Let's hear what he had to say. Everything is on the table. We we, we don't want to box ourselves in. Um, I do think that there are distinct advantages to somebody who knows the city of Chicago, um, but I also think there are other cities across the country that have some leaders who uh, have experience with a, a consent decree, and we can actually gauge their progress. Um, so right now, I would say everything's on the table. We're still in the preliminary phases of, uh, of trying to find the right candidate, um, but I do understand that there are advantages to, to both sides of it, so, but I, I would not characterize it necessarily as a priority. Kim, Ray, what do you think? Do you think the commission is going to feel pressure to present the new mayor with internal CPD candidates? I don't think they feel any pressure for, about that. <laughs> I think that they they want to show their independence, for mm. one thing. And um, they have a uh, collective collage of people on that uh, group that is very diverse and will come at it with a lot of different ideas. Um, uh, I know... My preacher's on that, uh, Reverend Beth Brown, and she's uh, very, uh, a very liberal person, and she's going to come at it with a, a different set of eyes than somebody from the FOP, for sure. So yeah. you have a real, real opportunity here to, to reach out, but 
you know, I do th- agree with uh, Derek again that, you know, we're looking at a situation where uh, insiders want somebody who knows the city. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. And, to you know, to raise point, um, the accountability is probably going to fall on whoever the next mayor is. Nobody's going to remember who the selection committee was that put these candidates forth. It's they're going to be remembered as, you know, whoever the next mayor selected. And if that person uh, succeeds or fails, that's going to be more closely tied yeah, to the mayor. still than fall the, on the mayor. Yeah. And, and the question also exists uh, whether the, the new mayor will accept any of these candidates, because right. in the past uh, they've you know thrown the whole bunch out. Uh, Rahm Emanuel did that and uh, selected Eddie Johnson, who wasn't on necessarily on anybody's radar to be police superintendent, except, except Rahm Emanuel's. Um, so um, uh, the final uh, the final voice comes down to the mayor, uh, although it would seem like a black eye on this new whole new selection process if somebody uh, not recommended by the yeah. commission was was, uh, chosen. was uh, chosen. But that's that's happened before. We also spoke with Craig Futterman, who's a police accountability expert on the show yesterday. He acknowledged that there's a broad consensus on the right and the left that David Brown failed to understand the culture of the CPD and Chicago more broadly. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. Someone from the inside, on the one hand, can have greater credibility from within to try to change that culture. And then they also will have a greater investment and are more entrenched in that culture. What do you think about that, Ray? Well, I think there's a point to that. As I covered Springfield starting in the 80s, it was like a wild frat house, uh, you know, atmosphere down there. Me Too wasn't even a concept back then. It was, uh, it would have been uh, uh, tossed aside very easily. And now we've seen uh, a maturation of the process there. And I think that there are some... uh, good key points to bringing somebody in who has developed along the way. And uh, I could see uh, that uh, accountability and uh, credibility uh, from uh, somebody. Just because you want to do an international search doesn't mean you don't have somebody good on the inside. Mm. And I think that's that's a, a, a point that they will have to wrestle with on this commission. I mean, as we talk about the the mayor's decision there, Kim, I remember you wrote about this topic and you said these two mayoral candidates, they have starkly different perspectives on reducing crime, right? Yeah. You know, Brandon Johnson in particular, he's talked about adding more detectives. Uh, Paul Vallis has talked about adding um, more police back to the street. And, you know, there's an entire uh, police department that you know, as Derek said, has pretty deep morale issues. There's a lot of people kind of in middle management, people that want to be promoted um, or that, you know, might want to have a say on kind of how things go. And are they going to accept um, an outsider or are are they going to play better with someone who's promoted from within? But, you know, the different visions will, you know, I think are going to really make a difference. Whoever becomes mayor, Mm -hmm. you know, they they are probably, um, you can imagine the candidates that, uh, someone like Brandon Johnson would go for are going to be very different than, you know, the the candidates Vallis is going to go for as far as, you know, kind of what approach they take. Are they going to take, you know, bringing back, uh, you know, more of these kind of nuisance stops? Are they going to, um, you know, take a more uh, kind of conciliatory approach and, and, and being, you know, able to work more with community and alternative first responders? So just a Two very different choices. Very different. They couldn't be further on ends of the spectrum. Well, 
Derek, former first deputy police superintendent Eric Carter is now the interim police superintendent. Briefly, what do we know about him? Well, he's uh, thought, well thought of uh, in the police department. He has uh, uh, been uh, working at the deputy chief ranks for some time. Um, I would, uh, but frankly, I don't know whether he is going to put his name forward uh, mm. for for the uh, permanent job. Uh, he previously led CPD's Bureau of Counterterrorism and Special Operations. Yeah, that's that's a highly specialized unit, obviously, uh, and uh, you have to have uh, uh, you know knowledge of the uh, department's intelligence operations uh, to be to be in that role. Mm-hmm. But again, um, that's different from leading the whole department. We'll just have to see. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Before the break, we took a deep dive into the mayor's race and the search for a new police superintendent, but we still have more to get to. Our panelists are Kim Belware of The Washington Post, veteran politics reporter Derek Blakely, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. All right, let's jump back in, Derek. The Chicago Board of Elections released more detailed election results on Wednesday. We now know 14 aldermanic races are heading for the runoff on April 4th, including two closely watched races. I want to start with the Northwest Side's 45th Ward and incumbent alderman Jim Gardner. Yes, Jim Gardner uh, is going to be in a runoff against uh, Megan uh, Mathias, who is a member of a a local school council uh, in the ward, Belding Elementary Local School Council. Uh, Gardner has been... uh, in a mess of hot water um, leading up to the election, he, uh, he was found guilty of violating the city's ethics ordinance, and he, he is under uh, federal investigation as well. Um, and uh, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, but he still got 48% of the vote in the first round, and, and uh, Matthias uh, got just under 17%. So um, um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that that shakes out. She's she's a you know an interesting candidate. Yes. of course she's very smart and has uh, a lot of of uh, good things that she's worked at the grassroots level with her her local government uh, position. So uh, it is um, interesting to see her emerge. But man, that's a long, a lot of votes she has to pick up here, and he only has to pick up like two percent more. Yeah. So she's got to get she's got to get the word out mm-hmm. if she has a chance. All right, let's turn to the West Side's 29th ward, Derek. There will be a runoff, right? Exactly. Uh, that's Chris Talaferro is the incumbent alderman there, and uh, he is going to be in a runoff against uh, a fellow named C.B. Johnson, who is uh, CEO of a uh, campaign for a, a drug-free West Side. Um, T- Talaferro just barely missed uh, avoiding the runoff. Uh, he had about 51% when the polls closed, but after the uh, uh, mail-in ballots were counted, that went down to 49.7%. Um, uh, so Talaferro... Um, um, is going to be might have a bit more of a race on his hands because Johnson got almost 40 percent uh, okay. of the vote in his ward. What happened in Logan Square's first ward? 
Oh, uh, there, Daniel uh, Espada. Espada um, um, avoided a runoff. Okay. Um, he was able to. Uh, uh, I think that's correct. Yeah, that is correct. He, yeah, he uh, he got a win over attorney. It was Sam Royko. Right, Sam Royko, uh, son of the famed newspaper columnist uh, Mike Royko. Um, uh, it looked like he might be forced into a runoff, but after the after the mail-in votes were counted. Uh, La Spada, who's a, uh, a progressive, a member of the uh, uh, Democratic Socialist uh, faction in the uh, city council, uh, survived and uh, retained okay. his seat. And Ray's city council was back in session this week for the first time since Lori Lightfoot lost her reelection bid. How's city council looking under this, you know, a lame duck mayor? Well, it looks like they're freaking out to some degree. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're like, wow, we are in power now and we could lose our power and, uh, when a new uh, uh, mayor comes in. So you've got uh, uh, ringleaders, as Franz Spielman of the Sun-Times wrote, uh, there is Scott Wagesback of the 32nd Ward and, and Michelle Harris, the 8th, a very... Um, major uh, player in, in establishment politics, too. And Jason Irvin, who is the uh, husband of uh, the city treasurer, um, also are all working to try to expand the number of committees so they can all have chairmanships. And, and by passing out chairmanships, they could take over uh, and put the city council uh, into a position where they have more power and they choose their own chairmen and they choose their own positions rather than the mayor choosing all the positions. And they could take a vote like that and retain their own power too and yeah. keep and not give it away. So there, it's, it's real interesting. It kind of reminds me of back when uh, John Strozier uh, uh fought uh, Dick Phelan at the county board level when Phelan thought he had uh, all of his uh, chairmanships wrapped up in a majority. Strozier, he was trying to oust, and Strozier put together the Republican Party uh, people on the board and overthrew everybody. So yeah. uh, it is uh, going to be an interesting interesting few days when uh, we get a new mayor here. And can yeah. city council approve something that might be a big hit with Chicagoans when there's another snowstorm? Yeah, a pilot program for clearing sidewalks. You know, everybody, everybody knows if you're, especially if you're a homeowner, you, you know, maybe or maybe not live in fear of those fines uh, for yeah. not clearing the sidewalk. But it's a big accessibility issue, safety issue, particularly Absolutely. for elderly residents, um, people who use wheelchairs, walking sticks, walkers, canes, people who use strollers. So there is good reason to do it. You know, if the snow is not being cleared, I think somebody uh, said fines, you know, fines don't plow the streets. So mm. if if this isn't happening, then the city stepping in. It's been done in other cities. Toronto. Yes. Notably. I was just going to tout that. Has, you know, has Toronto, done it. Home. Do they get snow there? They get snow there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, Montreal did it as well. So the, the pilot program that's being proposed here is a mix of uh, under, you know, kind of underserved areas and also high density city areas. So you could see this pilot in, in very different types of neighborhoods. But, um, you know, looking at how Toronto does this, for instance, you know, they do have a threshold. They, you know, they don't clear everything. They clear after, I think, two centimeters because, you know, they're on the metric system up you there. Right. <laughs> and um, and they they ha they give themselves, they, they do it over a, a period of, you know, about 24 hours. And, you know, people know from living here, sometimes you just need to stay on top of it because you can have one 
thin little snowfall that turns to, you know, real dangerous ice. That said, this is going to be, you know, certainly much better than nothing. But it'll be interesting to see how this program, um, you know, works as it as it as the pilot gets rolled out. I have long thoughts about (laughs) about being able to do this here. I mean, if we get a major snowstorm, uh, it can take uh, days for streets and sand to clear side streets, let alone sidewalks. Yeah. So, um, and this, I'm skeptical because it's, we have such a big city. There are so yeah. many miles of, because but it is doable. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned. I mean, well, the if pilot you have program, manpower, you can <laughs> do anything. I mean, if be. you, if you put enough people on the payroll to do it, but I, I, I'm just, I'm just saying, um, you know, people who live in, uh, in, in neighborhoods, especially on the, the southwest, northwest side. Know how long it takes for them to even get to to the side street. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they can. They they'll say they're you know they've been working on the main arteries for days. Right, right. So uh, you know, it'll be interesting. We'll talk about this for us, Derek. Council also approved a measure that's going to help employees of nonprofits to unionize. Any details there? Yeah, that's that's a really controversial uh, proposal. Um, it would strengthen labor rights for those who work uh, in um, in a lot of uh, nonprofits uh, that deal with serving the poor, public health, family support. Um, uh, but uh, uh, almost all of those organizations themselves uh, very much oppose this. Uh, inc- organizations like the YMCA and the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the Archdiocese, uh, and Catholic Charities. Uh, they all um, they all said it would be a drag on them being able to uh, provide the services that they provide. They didn't necessarily want to uh, uh, out now kill the bill, but they wanted to slow down and and be able to have some input into it. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's it's uh, it's going forward. Let's turn to some other union news this week. Then, Kim, what's the latest on the the concession workers over at United Center? Yeah, they are having a vote today, actually, to see if they are going to ratify that contract. So there could be a resolution, depending on how that vote goes uh, later on this afternoon. But um, the outcome of this vote is important. These are uh, concessions workers, dishwashers, bartenders who work at the United Center. Mm -hmm. And that is the site that has been put forth for the potential host site for the Democratic National Convention in 2024. It's really down between Chicago and Atlanta. And uh, given the uh, labor planks and the Democrats' Democrats platform, they are not going to uh, be at hotels or convention centers that don't have, uh, you know, that that don't have union workers. And they obviously need to have a contract that's in good standing. So this will be uh, pretty critical as to uh, how that decision gets made. The Atlanta hotels are unionized? That's what I wonder. I, (laughs) I sort of feel like maybe Chicago will get it by default because I just don't think there's enough unionized hotels in Atlanta to support 45,000 uh, people and all the side yeah. attractions that, yeah. that was, come with it. It was a sweaty disaster last time <laughs> it was down there, and and it was hot, so hot, and uh, Illinois was way away from the main convention center, and so it's if yeah. you want it if you want it run smoothly, not sixty eight smoothly, but actually smoothly, more like ninety six then Chicago could do it. (laughs) Grad students at the University of Chicago, they've also voted to unionize, Kim. I mean, since the pandemic ended, I feel like this is a trend that we've really been seeing all over the country. 
Yeah, labor has definitely had this upswing, but it's not in manufacturing. It's, you know, kind of in um, the information sector, you know, white collar type of jobs, grad students. Um, grad graduate students unionizing um, is is something that has been a trend that's going even before the pandemic. But uh, there are huge issues with uh, time and pay and, you know, also safety protections, you know, whether it's from workplace harassment or safety from things like COVID. Um, they they want more of a say in things. They're the ones who, at, especially at big schools, uh, they they're the ones running a lot of those uh, survey courses, the courses that freshmen teach. So they have a lot of responsibility. Mm. And clearly, as we're seeing from the success of these union drives, they they do have power. All right. Well, a sure sign, folks, that warmer weather is on the horizon. Navy Pier in the city announced that their summer event schedule, and it includes moving Taste of Chicago to September instead of July. But the world's largest food festival will remain in Grant Park instead of what we heard before it possibly moving to Navy Pier. What do you all think of the compromise? Just shifting it a little bit to well, September. The, yeah, they're shifting it uh, because uh, Grant Park will be busy uh, with the uh, the NASCAR race. With uh, so correct? many things. Yes. And, um, you know. It's going to be closed down for as many as 40 days for that. Yeah. NASCAR oh, street race. <laughs> it, it's, it's a change, uh, but you know, Taste of Chicago isn't what it was. It, it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, it was l- longer uh, before and uh, involved a lot more restaurants. Uh, it might be more pleasant in yeah. in the September when it's a little cooler out. Actually, so yeah. you're you're a fan of the the change. It well, sounds like. uh, yeah, I'm. I don't think it's a it's a a, a terrible thing. Yeah, they put it that way. What do you think, Ray? Putting it on at the same time as the NASCAR would have really been a disaster. You'd be handing out uh, fried chicken as the drivers <laughs> go by really quickly. It's just all kinds of possibilities for things to go wrong. Uh, and the Shedd Aquarium is now saying road closures for NASCAR. Mm. could cost them millions mm. because yeah. of lost visitors. I mean, the whole rollout of this uh, NASCAR thing seems to be kind of a mess. I also don't know who this is for. I have never met very fervent NASCAR fans among Chicagoans. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they I'm sure oh, yeah. they exist. There's just not a lot of them. And Chicagoans also love their lakefront and they love their outdoors in the summer. Um but also, you know, to Derek's point, a, a couple of years ago, uh, the much, much smaller Pitchfork Music Festival yeah. shifted closer to the fall. And it was smaller in attendance. And for a lot of people who had been going in the years when it was, you know, really, really yeah. packed, they liked it better. You do lose some, you know, some families and some younger people because they're back in school. Yeah. But uh, for the people who can make it out, maybe they have a better experience because it's not as sticky and it's not as... And, and to your earlier point, I mean, are the parks for us or are they for, for tourists and, and bringing in revenue? Well, in this case, they're going to be for tourists and bringing in revenue. I mean, I'm sure NASCAR, you know, has projections of uh, filling up all the hotels and, and restaurants uh, for for uh, that, that weekend. Um, and uh, even though, you know, NASCAR isn't necessarily a northern sport, it's a it's a very popular sport. So, um I think uh, the city was probably looking at the bottom line here yeah. and uh, trying to revive uh, uh, industries that have been, you know, hurt in the pandemic. Changes. All right, we'll leave it there, gang. That's former CBS2 Chicago politics reporter Derek Blakely, Chicago Tribune investigative reporter Ray Long, and Kim Bellware of The Washington Post. Thank you all for joining us. Have a good weekend.